So uh, we'll go ahead and get started. Father, thanks for a beautiful morning and for bringing us safely to your house to open your word, to be challenged from it. Pray that you would guide our discussions now and our thoughts and grant us a wonderful time together in your word. In Christ's name, amen. All right, the rapture. Um, how many of you have been Christians since the 70s? Remember the rapture fever back then? Yeah, we used to have the rapture fever. Um, I know Open Door hosted several um, prophecy conferences that Moody did. They had like a, I don't know, in the springtime they had like a prophecy conference. They had like five or six speakers and they sort of rotate between churches. You know, one, it'd be like a five-week kind of deal and this week you'd have one person and the next week somebody else. Um, and then there were the movies that came out. Remember those yeah, movies? What is that? Um, Thief in the Night. And I forget, There's they had a couple of sequels to that one. Mark of the Beast and another one. And uh, lately it's been the Left Behind series that everybody's gone through. And uh, I remember those days where there was, I, I remember being in high school, right at the end of my high school years, where the expectation was, you know, Jesus could come back at any time. And, and there was this real expectation. And that sort of died down a little bit, don't you think? I mean, do you really see the church today as being really involved in that? Probably not as much as it was. I mean, it seems to have cooled down a little bit. But when we look at the prophetic calendar and we say, okay, what is the next event on the prophetic calendar? The next event, really, the next major event, was this thing we call the rapture, the catching away. Now, last week, um, we slogged through, and I use that word slog probably very descriptively, we worked our way through the various views of the millennium, whether there is one or not, whether it's pre or Christ comes before or after the millennium. We talked about the various views on that. But when it comes to the rapture, everybody believes the rapture occurs prior to the millennium. So if you believe in a rapture, you are by definition a pre Millennialist. In other words, you believe Christ comes before the millennium. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about all the other various views of the millennium because we're going to really focus in on what, and if you go look back at your notes or you get the notes today and look back on um, what we talked about last week, we're going to be looking at dispensational premillennialism. That's really the view that I think best um, harmonizes all of the passages having to do with Christ's second coming. Now, just before we get started here, there's one thing we have to mention, and that is when you look at this concept of what's going to happen in the future, God has given us big picture items. He's given us the grand sort of how this is all going to end, the big pictures. But he's not given us all the fine details that fill in all of the little events that occur up to that. He's not given us that. He's not tried to satisfy our curiosity by giving us all the details, but he has given us the big picture. And we need to be careful to distinguish between what we can know for certain in the scripture and what we have to sort of fill in the blanks with. And that when it comes to this whole concept of the rapture and things like that, we don't have a passage of scripture that gives us in a very concise, clear format the major events in chronological sequence. We have the major events, but we don't have them in chronological sequence. You understand what I'm trying to get at here? Mm -hmm. We know there's a rapture, but it does, there nowhere in the Bible does it clearly, unambiguously, 100%, with no questions asked, tells us when. We can infer when. I think we can make a good 
um, case for that. But there's nothing that definitively says this is exactly when it's going to happen. It's going to happen before this, and then this thing's going to happen, then that thing's going to happen, then that thing's going to happen. We don't have that. We have some big clumps of information, but we don't have the details along the way. We just don't have that. So when we start looking at some of these topics that we're going to be looking at in the coming weeks, like the rapture, the judgment seat of Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb, things like that, we're going to have to say, to the best of our ability, as we look at the whole of prophetic scripture, this is how we see this thing unfolding. But we can't know 100% for certain, beyond any shadow of a doubt, that that's exactly the way it's going to work out. Follow? I mean, let's, let's look at the first advent. In the first advent, did Israel know that the Messiah was coming? Sure they did. They knew that. They were looking for the Messiah, right? What was their problem? They didn't know when. And when the Messiah did come, they had their view of the Messiah was so skewed that they missed him. But it was there in Scripture. So they, they knew the big picture. They knew from a big picture perspective that their Messiah was going to come. And they knew from a big picture perspective that their Messiah was to rule and reign. But they missed out on the suffering servant part. They missed out on what Christ really came to do. And because of that, they missed it. They had the big picture right, but they didn't understand the details. And sometimes I think when we look at our stuff here, when we start to look at the rapture and things like that, we get so focused in on trying to fill in all the little details along the way, we're going to miss the big picture. We don't want to do that. And uh, you understand that LaHaye's books, the Left Behind series, that's not 100% accurate. You realize that, I hope. It's called fiction. Yeah. All right. And it means that that's his scenario of how it's going to work out, but is that the way it's going to work out? Probably not. Probably not going to be anything like that. I mean, there might be some general big picture things that, that do work out the way he has there. But as far as the details, we don't have that. So when we look at this concept of the rapture, and, and by the way, the rapture is, is unique to dispensational premillennialism. All right? If you are an amillennialist, in other words, if you fall into the camp of saying either A, there is no millennium, like we talked about last week, or we are in the millennium, as many believe, there's no rapture. In fact, if you listen to the amillennial people, and I've listened to many of them, they talk about the fictitious rapture. And they, they really belittle, to an extent, they belittle this concept of the secret rapture. They, they think that is just ludicrous. They... They, they think that is just totally, as, as one of them put it, completely against Orthodox Christianity to believe in a secret rapture. All right, they're against it. So when we're looking at the rapture, this is something unique to classical, not classical, but to dispensational premillennialism. All right? So let's, what, let's define what is the rapture. The, rap, the definition of the rapture is the rapture is the time prior to a second coming which the Lord returns to carry his bride back to heaven with him. Who's the bride? Church. Church. All right, we know that. That's what, uh, I mean, that's throughout the New Testament, right? One of the major pictures of the church is, we, if remember, we look back on ecclesiology, we talk about pictures of the church. One of the pictures of the church is the bride, and Christ is the groom. After the rapture, his wrath is then poured out on an unbelieving world. Why? In order to bring Israel to repentance. That's the purpose of the tribulation. And where do we get this word? It's actually derived from the Latin word raptura, to take or snatch away, to snatch away. 
All right, that's actually the word that, that rapture comes from, is to snatch away. Now, many who say that the rapture doesn't exist, and they, they say it's a fictitious doctrine, is they say, well, the word rapture does not appear in the New Testament. And they're right. The word rapture does not appear in the New Testament, but neither does the word trinity. Do you believe in trinity? Yes, we believe in the trinity. So just because a word does not appear in the New Testament does not mean, or a theological word does not appear, does not mean the theology is wrong. But we do have passages that talk about Christ catching away his church. Now at a 20,000 foot level, why do, we, why do we believe in this thing called the rapture? Well, when you take all of the passages, and you can do this, you can go through the New Testament. Jane? Pardon me, it's worse than a movie theater, you know, where the guy's got to get through the middle of the line. No, I'm talking about him, not you. Yeah. She just said me and Yeah, it's, it's him. It's not you. It's him. It's him. <laughs> all right, well, he does. He does a good job of that. But <laughs> when you take all of the passages in the New Testament, you just you start in, well, all the passages in the Bible, having to do with Christ's second coming, and you start piling them on your table, they, they fall into two clumps as you look at them. You have this, this stack here, which is a pretty high stack, and it talks about Christ coming to establish his kingdom, to set up rule, to reign, to, to um, conquer his enemies. And there's a lot of those passages that talk about him coming to rule and to reign and to establish a kingdom, and, and he's coming with his saints. Um, Enoch, remember old Enoch there in Jude where he says the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment upon all the unrighteousness of men. So you've got this pile that has Jesus coming to rule and to reign and conquer and to set up a kingdom. But then you have another, a lot smaller <laughs> pile over here that talks about Jesus coming to take his bride home with him, to, to, to take out a people for himself, to... And the characters, you look at the character of these two events here, they're completely distinct, so distinct that you can't make the argument that they're the one and the same kind of thing. For example, in John, Christ says, I, come to, I, I go to prepare a place for you when I'm ready. I'll come again and receive you to my self. self. Well, that's a lot different than him saying, I'm going to come and rule and reign and establish a kingdom and you know, um, bring in righteousness. It, and as you look at, the, at, at these passages that have to do with the, with the second coming, you find very quickly that there appears to be two descriptions of his second coming. So how do you explain that? How can you work through that? How can you define that? Well, there can't, there, it's either you have to somehow um, mesh the two together to make them one and the same event, or you understand that there possibly it could be two phases to the second coming. A coming where Christ gathers his own to himself to, to, to take away the bride of Christ and another where he actually comes to rule and to reign and to establish his kingdom. And as you look at the book of Revelation in Revelation 19 and 20 we have very clearly the second one. We call that the revelation when Christ comes to establish his rule. And when he comes in Revelation 19 who's he coming with? His bride. So the question is how did the bride get there if he's coming so now we've got to sort that out. That's what we're going to do here. So the whole point is when you look at all of the passages, you have to say, and this is what happens when it comes to eschatology. 
to, the, to some of the finer points. You have to say, I have all of these passages. What, how can I best interpret all of these passages to make a consistent whole, to, to, to best answer all of the questions of all of the passages? See, if, if as the post-millennialists do, all you do is focus on Christ's second coming and is establishing his rule and his reign and all of that, what do you do about those passages where it talks about Christ coming to receive us to himself? How do you explain those? You've got to explain those somehow. And when you look at all of the passages and you look at all of the information, the best explanation, I believe, the best explanation is a premillennial, pre-tribulational view of end-time events. That, that best fits all of the available passages, all of the available elements. All right? And we're going to see that as we work our way down through that. Is it making sense so far what I'm trying to get at here? Yeah. All right? Right. When we talk about second coming, and you're right, it's, it's the terminology we use. Usually when we say second coming, we're referring to Christ establishing his, his rule. But when you, when, you look at, when you look at it from the biblical perspective, what is Christ, we have the first advent and the second advent. What's the second advent look, at, look like? Well, there's two parts to it. There's a rapture part and a revelation part. The revelation is when Christ comes to establish his kingdom and to establish righteousness and a rule and a reign. And we often use second coming to refer to that. It's just terminology, okay? Um, it's like, here's another example of this. When we talk about the resurrections, remember? We had the first resurrection and the second resurrection. But as it turned out, how many phases were in the first resurrection? Three. Christ and the first fruits. Those that are alive when he comes again. And then the last leanings, remember? And Paul spells that out, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 15. But when you look back at the Old Testament, what did it appear like? There was only one resurrection, right? A resurrection of life and a resurrection of damnation. It appeared in Daniel 12 that there was one resurrection. But then when we come to Christ, he talks about the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust. And then Paul further refines that to refer to the first Resurrection, which has three phases, then the last resurrection, and then you get over to Revelation 20, and it talks about the first resurrection and the second resurrection. So you, you see it unfold as time goes on. But that doesn't mean that God lied to you when he started out. He just didn't give you all of the details. All right? There's nothing wrong with that. And that's the same thing when it comes to the second coming. It's not that God hid this. It's just he didn't give us all of the details until time unfolded, and we were able to understand it. So as we look at this, there, there are several, there are really four major passages in the New Testament that have to do with the rapture. Four major, these are the four major passages having to do with it. Let's look at John 14, 1 through 3. That's the first major passage. John 14, 1 through 3. This is probably one of the most known ones where Christ is in the upper room and uh, he's talking to his disciples and he says, uh, don't let your hearts be troubled, verse 1, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself 
that where I am, you may be also. This is the promise. This is really the first hint that we have of this thing called a rapture. And we don't know it's the rapture at this point, but it's the coming of Christ to gather his own to himself. And the imagery he draws from is the Jewish marriage ceremony imagery. What is that? Well, in those days, if you were, uh, the, the way the marriage worked is that your parents would arrange your marriage with some of their friends. They would say, if I have a son and you have a daughter, we'll marry him off. And that's the way it was. You didn't have dating and all that kind of stuff. It was all prearranged. And usually the first time you met your bride-to-be was at what they call the betrothal ceremony, where you would have this ceremony, usually somewhere in your, you know, 13, 14 years old. They married early in those days. But you would go, if you were a man, you'd go over to your bride's house, the family would go over, and there would be a betrothal ceremony, after which, technically, as far as the law was concerned, you were legally married. But you didn't live together at that time. What did you do? Well, you went back to your father's house, to your father's home, and you would get a place ready for your bride. You would either build on to your father's house, you would, whatever was necessary, you would build on there. And when that was all done, it could take up to a year. When that was all done, it was all finished, then what did you do? Well, you and your friends went over to your bride's house. You would collect your bride. You would come back to your father's house. You would have a lavish seven-week or seven-day ceremony, possibly, party, at the end of which... Everybody left and you lived with your wife as husband and wife. You consummated the marriage at that point and you lived together. And that's the imagery that Christ is talking about. What's he saying? I'm going to go away. So in that text, what is the church? Well, the church metaphorically is the bride of Christ. And what has our bridegroom done? Well, he's gone away to do what? To prepare a place. And when that place is prepared and it's all ready, what's he going to do? He's going to come back and he's going to receive us to himself. All right? Now that doesn't sound like him coming back in judgment to rule, to reign, to establish a kingdom, all of that stuff. That's not the imagery in view here. The imagery in view, he's coming back to take us to himself, to, to be with him. All right? And that's what Christ is drawing from, the, the Jewish marriage ceremonial customs of those days. And all, by the way, anybody who read this back then would understand exactly what he was talking about. They would understand what he meant when he said that. And then we have 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. This is probably one of the main passages. Thessalonians, by the way, the two books of Thessalonians are sometimes called Paul's... Uh, they are the soteriological books or the eschatological books where he's really talking about um, end-time events. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians, every chapter ends with some mention of Christ's second coming, which is interesting. And Christ talked a lot about this to the Thessalonian church. Now, in order of things, when was the Thessalonian church established? On Paul's second missionary journey, right? Remember, he was in Ephesus. He was called over to Miletus. And from there, he went up to Thessalonica, preached the word. People came to know the Lord, and the church was established. So what we're looking at here is really the first church established on the European continent. This is the first church. 
And Paul ministered there and he taught them the word of God. And evidently he taught them about Christ's second coming. And then what happened is Paul went from there, he made his way down to Berea, from Berea down to Athens, from Athens down to Corinth, and he sent Timothy back to find out how's things going back up in Thessalonica. I was only there for about three to four weeks. I wonder how they're doing. And, and Timothy brings back this report from Thessalonica saying they're really great, but they got a lot of questions about the second coming. So Paul writes this in response to that. And one of their major questions is Paul said, or Paul talked about Christ coming back. And by the way, you need to understand something. As an aside, a lot of people who don't like the secret rapture, don't believe in that, say there's no, nowhere in the Bible to talk about the imminent return of Christ. What do we mean by imminent? Anytime. He can come back at any time. They really try to downplay that. And in fact, I heard a tape by one of the amillennial guys trying to really downplay this whole concept of imminency. But when you look at the New Testament, there is, an, there is, there is certainly, when you, when you read the, the letters that Paul wrote, there was an expectancy on the part of believers that Christ could come back at any time. You, got, you can't get around that. I don't know how you explain that away. But they had this idea that Christ could come back. And the problem with the Thessalonian believers, say, wait a minute, Uncle Joe died. And Christ hasn't come back yet. What about Joe? Did he miss it? Did Joe miss everything? Is Joe going to be left out on this whole thing? And Paul writes this letter back to try and encourage them and say, no, Uncle Joe did not miss out. And that's why he writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, but I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Now, in the New Testament, the, the word asleep is a euphemism for what? Death. But in believers, we fall asleep. It's not a permanent kind of thing. Yes. Not spiritual. That you may not grieve as others who have no hope. So I don't want you to be grieving like those who have no hope. Well, who's those who have no hope? Unbelievers. I don't want you to grieve like them. Don't worry about that. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will we always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, this, this here is the major passage having to do with this concept of the rapture, the catching away. What do we know about this? Well, if you died before this time, you come with Christ and you meet the people who are alive, who are snatched away. Where do you meet them? In the air. There's no mention here of Christ coming to the earth, right? So what about all those passages that have to do with Christ coming, his feet touching the Mount of Olives, it's splitting, him establishing the kingdom, all that stuff? Well, this can't be referring to that, right? So this is a different coming. And that's why we say that there's two phases to this second coming. There's a coming where Christ comes in the clouds. What's the clouds to the Jewish people? The air, the atmospheric heavens. All right? He catches us up to be with him. All right? And those people who died, they don't miss out on it. They come with Christ and meet us in the air. They, they are with him. 
and we're all caught up together to be with him. There's no mention here of second coming in the sense of him coming to rule, to reign, to establish a kingdom. This is, this is him coming to take us home to be with him. And when we compare this with John chapter 14, it gives us an understanding that Christ is coming to take us home to be with him. This is the major one. And what, when does this happen? What well, can happen at any time? Paul doesn't give a time frame here. It's just future, right? But, the, but here's, the, here's the thing. The reason he had to write this is because there was an expectancy on the part of the Thessalonian believers that Jesus could come back at any time. Or this passage makes no sense. To say that there was no indication in the New Testament that the believers ever thought of an imminent second coming is ridiculous. Because this passage doesn't make sense if they didn't believe that there was an imminent second coming. In fact, they believed it was so imminent that Paul had to write a second letter to them called 2 Thessalonians where he says, no, you're not in the day of the Lord. You've not missed the rapture. You haven't missed it. Because they thought, evidently, if you, if you understand what was going on here in the New Testament, is between 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, the Thessalonian believers got a letter, a forged letter we call it, that purported to be from Paul that said, you know what, you guys missed the rapture, Christ has already come back, you're in the time of trouble, you're in the time of tribulation. And they were all upset about that, all bothered about that. And Paul had to write Second Thessalonians to them to say, no, you're not in the day of the Lord. You are people of the day, not people of the night. You did not miss it. He said, don't, don't be fooled as though it was a letter from me. In fact, I think it's Second Thessalonians 2, he talks about that. So, the early church had this expectancy. And we see it borne out in these two passages. We're talking about this time when Christ comes to receive his bride back to be with himself. And the imagery of the Jewish marriage ceremony is evidenced here. What's the purpose of the rapture? 1 Corinthians 15 talks about this. This is the great resurrection passage in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 52 talks about this. I, in verse 50, he says, uh, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. What's flesh and blood? What's he talking about there? Flesh and blood. Yeah, your present physical body is not suited for an eternity in heaven. Why? Well, if I have to explain that, yeah, hair's falling out, eyes don't work, teeth falling out, things don't work anymore. You're going to want to live like that forever? Come on. All right? The idea is that our physical body, the, the flesh that we have, the, the humanness that we have, is not suited for an eternity in heaven. So what do we need to have? A new body. And that's what you see here. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkle of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be what? Changed. In what way are we going to be changed? Well, we're going to have a glorified body like Christ. What's his body like? Well, you know, we don't have a physiological uh, description of it other than it is an incorruptible, imperishable, eternal body. I don't know what, any more than that. It's going to live forever. It's not going to decay. It's not going to wear out. It's not going to get tired. It's going to be perfect. It's like his. 
body. We'll be changed like him to be like him. Ruth Ann. Like I am, yeah. So what was Christ's body like? Well, he could be here, he could be in heaven, he could walk through walls, he could appear. I don't know how that all works out. Is it like a hologram? No, I don't think it's a hologram. It's a physical body. He had a yeah, physicality to him. I mean, in fact, that's the important thing. Remember, Christ ate fish. Now, wait a minute. If it's an eternal body, how can it eat? Well, I don't even want to go there because I, don't I, don't I can't explain it. I don't, know how, I don't know how that all works out. But it's going to be an eternal body that's suited for an eternal existence in heaven. And it's not going to decay. It's not going to wear out. It's not going to get old. That's the beauty of it. It's not going to age. You're not going to have any physical ailments that we have now. Yeah. Physically. It's talking about the body here. It's not talking about your soul. And remember, it says in Philippians, in Philippians, Christ says to, to be absent from the body is to be present <coughs> Excuse me, with the Lord, right? So spiritually, I'm present with the Lord. If I die right now, my body dies, but me, Alan, I'll be present with the Lord. I won't have my body. I'll be present with him. I'll be conscious. Yeah, your immaterial self. We talk about this in anthropology. You got your material self and your immaterial self. So your immaterial self, soul, spirit, whatever you wanted to define that, you're immediately in the presence of the Lord. Okay, so the immaterial self includes soul and spirit. Well, it depends whether you're trichotomous or dichotomous. You can go back and get the tape on that. All right? But the whole point is you've got an immaterial self. There's a material you and an immaterial you. All right? And the immaterial you, the real you, goes to be with Christ. Paul said, I, to depart and be with Christ is a lot better than what I'm going through now. This concept of soul, and by the way, we're talking about here is the concept of soul sleep. You know, when, when a Christian dies, they like go to sleep, they're, they're unconscious, and the next thing they remember is they wake up when they're, in, when they're resurrected. The Bible doesn't really talk about that. Here, Revelation, where it talks about the souls of them who had been beheaded for the witness of Jesus, where are they? They're in heaven under the altar and they're talking. They're not asleep. All right? They're, they're, they're there. They're conscious. They're, they're cognizant of their surroundings. So when we die, our, our immaterial self goes to be with the Lord. Our body goes to the grave. But someday God will resurrect and give us a new body fit for an eternal existence in heaven because he says flesh and bone the idea of flesh and bone here is phys our current physical form is not suited for an eternal existence so what happens well those that are dead in Christ come back they receive a glorified body and our body is transformed how I don't know it doesn't tell me that he was conscious yeah he's his immaterial self all right um, he, feels pain. he feels pain. And by the way, here's the, here's the sad thing. The, the unbelievers who are resurrected receive a body. You know that, right? Yeah. Second resurrection. Everybody has eternal life. But this body is not a body fitted for eternal glory. It's a body fitted for eternal destruction in the lake of fire. Yeah. Yeah. That verse where it says, 
Right. Mm-hmm. Right, and, and, and you see this. Okay, because what he's trying to get at here is they were grieving. They were grieving because Uncle Joe missed it. They thought he did. All right, Uncle Joe missed the second coming. What happens to Uncle Joe? You're talking about Jesus coming back and taking us home, and here's Joe, he's dead. You know, does he miss it all? And, and Paul's saying, look, I don't want you to grieve like the pagans who don't have any hope. Why? Because we know what's going to happen someday. Uncle Joe will be resurrected. We will be with him. We will see him. We're, we don't need to be like the uninformed, the pagans. And you see this in Christ, when Christians die. You know, it's sad, right? It's sad. But for a Christian, it's not a forever sad, is it? Because we know that someday we'll see them again. I like, I like what Vance Havner said. He said when somebody was talking about him losing his wife, he said, I haven't lost her. I know exactly where she's at. She's not lost. Temporarily, we're separated, but she's not lost. I will see her again. The Bible has a little note that these were new believers within the span of about a month. Yeah. Yeah, they're just catching on to this. I mean, Paul was only there about three weeks before he got chased out of town. They're brand new believers. And, and they're struggling with this, and that's why he wrote this back to them. Very, yeah. a very, a very good book out there by Dr. Irvin Lutzer. I think it's entitled "The Moment After You Die." Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it brings all the passages together. All right. I mean, we don't, we don't, we stand before the Lord not at the great white throne judgment. Yeah. Well, and, and it, going back to Dave's kind of about asleep here. How do you know that's what it means? Well, we got this passage here. We got 1 Corinthians where it talks about taking the Lord's Supper in vain. This caused many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. What do you mean? They went to bed and they didn't get up? No, they're dead, right? And, and remember when Christ comes and the little girls died and he said, don't worry, she's not dead. She is a sleep. Why? Because the resurrection and the life is there. She's not dead forever. She's just asleep. So, Sleep is a euphemism or a metaphor, and for the believer, for death. Because our body is asleep, but someday what will God do? He will resurrect us and give us a new body. A body fit for eternal existence in heaven. And that's what 1 Corinthians is talking about. Why the rapture? So that we get our glorified body to be with Christ in heaven forever. An eternal body that does not decay and does not wear out and does not get old and tired Think about what it's like to just be alive forever and never sleep, never have to sleep. Just never hurt, never hurt. Um, it's kind of weird, but I was in the hospital um, about a month ago, and um, I almost had a stroke. But uh, my parents are both dead, and they've been gone for uh, a while. And they're talking about a different kind of body. My parents were in the room with me. They were standing at the door, and they had a, a body, but it wasn't solid. It wasn't like you could see through it, but they had a body, and they were standing up, and they were both there at the door. And I, I could recognize them. They wasn't there to scare me or anything like that, but it, it was just weird how they were standing there at the door, and I could, I could recognize them. I kept closing my eyes because I didn't want to, 
you know, it was kind of scary to see something standing there at the door, but both of my parents were there at the door. And they weren't, it wasn't like a solid form. Yeah. It wasn't exactly something you could see through either. Yeah. Well, the question is, are those your real parents? And the answer, according to the scriptures, is no, they were not. Because if your parents are dead, they, are, they, they might look like it, but that's not your parents. That would not have been your parents. All right. Um, you know, the Bible says, when I die, I go to heaven. I'm not going to be back here as a ghost. I'm not going to be haunting anybody. Um, or come back here in some kind of spirit form. Um, that, that, that there's a veil that's an uncrossable veil at that point in time. All right. Um, we may think we see them, but they're, that's not really them. That's not really our parents. All right. It may look like them, but it's not. Okay. That's what the Bible says. When, when, when you die, you're in heaven. You don't come back until the rapture, in which case you get a new body. All right. Yeah. Yeah, but th I would say that is not your parents. Um, there are other explanations for that, but I don't think that's really them. Um, but it, we can talk about it later, but yeah. Um, the other thing about the, ra the other rapture passage, the fourth and final rapture passage that we really have, is the 1 John 3, 1 through 3 passage where it talks about the rapture in the terms of preparation. Okay, when Christ comes back, all right, let's look at 1 John 3, 1 through 3. Well, let's start in verse 228. That's really where we need to start. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we maybe have confidence and not shrink, shrink from him in shame at his coming. What's this talking about? Christ coming back. And we need to be what? Ready. Ready. All right. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are now God's children, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This goes back to what are we going to be like? We're going to be like Jesus when we see him. And every man, that ha one who has his hope in him, purifies himself even as he is pure. What does that mean? Christ is coming back. When he comes back, what do I want to be? Ready. Yeah. Right? I want to be ready. Right. I want to be ready when he appears. Yeah. I want to be prepared when he comes. I don't want to be ashamed when he shows up. If you know some dignitary is going to come by your house for dinner, what do you do? You get ready for it, right? You don't want to certainly meet him at the door and cutoffs and dungarees and overalls and, you know, dirt all over your face, you know, and you, you, you want to be prepared, all right? And the idea here is that we need to be prepared for Christ. So if we have a hope that Christ is coming back again, what should we be busy doing? Getting ready for that. Now, in what sense do we get ready for that? How do we get ready for that? We get to know him more. We, we work on our sanctification, right? We work on being a godly people. We don't want to be ashamed before him at his coming. 
And a lot of metaphors in the New Testament bring this about. Um, if you read Matthew 24, which doesn't apply to the church, but it certainly applies to the expectancy, you've got two servants and one who said, well, my Lord delays his coming. And what does he do? He beats his fellow servants and takes advantage of them. And what's going to happen to him when the Lord comes back? He's unprepared. He's not ready. He's caught. You need to be ready. You need to be ready at all times so you're ready at that time. That's, that's what the passage here is saying. Be ready for Christ because you don't know when he can come back. And, and even if you're not ready for him in the sense of him returning, what other possibility may happen? You die. You die. So do you want to be ready? Do you want to be ready for him? Or do you want to have your life just a total wreck and mess when he comes back? That's what John is talking about here. Be ready. There's an expectancy of Christ coming back. There's an expectancy that he's going to be here, so you need to be ready. And these are the major passages having to do with the rapture. When you look at the New Testament, it's very clear that there's this phase of the second coming in which Christ comes back, he catches his church away to be with him. There's a catching away to be with him. There's no mention at that point of him coming to rule. There's no mention of setting up a kingdom. There's no mention of any of that. Rather, there is a mention of him coming, taking us home to be with him. Now, where's home to Christ? Heaven. Heaven. There's the, he doesn't come here to the earth. He comes and goes back to heaven. All right? And we're going to see this unfold a little more as we start looking at the pre-tribulational rapture and the evidences for it from the New Testament. But these are the major passages having to do with the rapture. Who are the participants in the rapture? Who, who are the players? Well, there's Christ, right? Yeah. He's the one that comes, he goes away and he's preparing a place for, place for us. Now, where is that place? In heaven. Yeah. And the idea there is when the preparations are done, when everything's ready, what am I going to do? I'm going to come back and take you home to be with me. In my Father's house are many mansions, dwelling places. Now, that does not mean that when you get to heaven, you've got an address of some palatial mansion somewhere. That's not what it's talking about. Rather, we're going to be in the Father's house. What is that? Heaven. Do you need a place to dwell in heaven, theoretically? No, there's no rain. There's no, you know, you don't need an air-conditioned place to stay up there, anything like that. Everybody gets everything. We all inherit it all, right? Yeah. There's no private property in heaven. There's no house. There's no need for shelter in that sense. The, the, it's the imagery that Christ is drawing from. The imagery that there's going to be a beautiful place. And we already did the calculations on this, right? We figured out that if you do the math on the New Jerusalem, and it's a cube, that there's enough room theoretically to have one square mile of space all to yourself. That's a lot. That's big. Mm -hmm. And if God is building this thing, how beautiful is it? Well, it's beyond our ability to talk about and comprehend and understand. It's, it's a place of beauty beyond description. But he's building this place for us. He's preparing it. And the idea of preparation there is not that Christ is really working every day trying to get this thing built. Because what could God do in an instant in time? Speak it into existence. You don't need that. The idea is preparation. The idea is there's a preparation time that he has that 
when it's time is up, when the time is ready, what's he going to do? He's going to come back and take us home. The archangel, what's that? Well, the sound of the archangel, the trumpet, the call, trumpet call, talks about a trumpet at the last trumpet. Now, what is the last trumpet here? It, it, some people say, well, it's the last trumpet and it's a series of trumpets. No. In those days, what was a trumpet for? A herald, but what else? Could announce something. An announcement. Well, what else? A call. So, in the, in, you go back to ancient Israel, right, where they're wandering through the land. What was the trumpets used for? Well, if you read it, they had different trumpets that were, one trumpet blast was to get ready, we're moving out, and then sometime later there'd be another trumpet blast, and finally there'd be the last blast, which, okay, time to move out, let's go. And they used trumpets to call the assembly together to signal things. What's the imagery here? Well, there's going to come a trumpet that sounds when, time to call everybody home. When's that going to happen? Don't know, don't know yet. But there's going to be a trumpet call. The sound of the trumpet and of the archangel. It talks about the archangel doing the blowing of the trumpet. How does that all work out? I'm not really quite sure. But I'm looking for the trumpet call someday. Um, where you have which may be Michael. I believe Daniel 12.1 assures that it's Michael. I'm 99.9% sure that it's Michael. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. Um, the bodies of dead believers, what happens to those? Well, they are resurrected. So how does God, you know, get all those molecular atoms back into the... Don't worry about that, right? I mean, if Christ, if God could speak the worlds into existence, the universe into existence, putting together a new body for you is not that tough a thing. Is it going to be the same molecular structure that you have now? Well, probably not. I, the Bible doesn't talk about that. It doesn't... It doesn't it doesn't define that, but there's going to be a certain physicality to it. And what's going to happen? God's going to immediately give you a glorified, resurrected body. And some say, well, what does that look like? If I'm bald now, am I going to be bald then? Probably not. If, I'm, if I have to have glasses now, do I need glasses then? No. You're going to be in a perfectly functional body. What will you look like? You'll be recognizable. I, you know, I told you before I do family history and I have pictures of my grandmother from age 3 all the way to 77 and you know what, I can pick her out of every picture. She's recognizable, I can recognize her. And, and there's certainly be a recognition and some have said we'll probably be somewhere in our prime of life in mid-twenties possibly is what we'll look like. Us guys will be handsome, you women you'll be beautiful. I don't know how that all works out but, but God is going to give us a glorified perfect body that's going to be suited. And what happens to the living believers? Well, we're going to be caught up, and as we're caught up, what are we going to do? We're going to be transformed. How does that work? I don't know how that works out. God's going to give us a new body fit for eternal existence. And it's going to be the same kind of body that the resurrected believers have. There's not going to be two separate kinds of bodies. And it'll be fitted for an eternal existence in the presence of God. Daniel 12.1. Yeah. The only archangel you really see in the Bible is Michael. So when it says the voice of the archangel, you'd probably assume what? 
It's Michael. It doesn't say he's the only archangel, but I would say that that's probably who it is. All right. All right, so that's the rapture. It's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. So now the question becomes, okay, when? When does it happen? What's the timing of it? Now, one thing we don't know is what? When? We don't know that. We, when we talk about timing, we're talking about timing in relation to other events, not timing in when does it happen. Because what did Christ say? No one knows the day or the hour, not even me. The Father has reserved that for himself. God, God knows when it's going to happen. God the Father knows. But as an incarnation, Christ did not know when that time would be. He was not privy to that. How does that work out? I have no idea. But as incarnation, Christ said, no, I don't even know at this time. Only the Father knows. Because remember, the disciples repeatedly asked him, when are you coming back? When are you coming back? When are you coming back? And he says, I don't know. That's been appointed to by the Father. So we don't know when, but we do talk about it in relation to other events. And the event we used to talk about is called this tribulational time. Now, we haven't talked about that, but that is the time of Jacob's trouble. That is a future seven-year period of time in which God deals with Israel again. Major passages having to do with that are Daniel, um, Revelation 4 through 19 talks about this time. Matthew 24 talks about this time. It is a time when God deals with his people Israel. So the question is, does the rapture come before, during, after? When does it happen in relation to the tribulational period? And that's why we come with pre, post, mid, tribulation, all these different names here in which we try to sort out, okay, when is this in relationship to the, res to the tribulation? We don't know when it is, period. We're not given time, but we can sort out in relation to the tribulation, when would it be? And there are those that say, well, there's no rapture at all. Who are those? Well, those are the amillennial folk that say there is no rapture. Christ comes back, judgment, the end. That's all there is to it. Yeah. Yeah, we talked about it last week. If you'd have been here like a good boy. No, I'm I got to bust him in the chops, you know. But yeah, but they, alleg they allegorize it away. They, they, they reinterpret the scriptures to fit their system, basically, is what they do. But when you look at the clear sense of scripture, you, you're left with this future millennial kingdom. But they would say there's no rapture at all. Others say, well, there's a partial rapture. What do we mean by that? Not everybody goes up in the rapture. There are some Christians that are left behind. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Not all of you, not, not everyone who's a Christian gets raptured. That's a weird one. There's the mid-tribulational rapture. What does that mean? Christ comes partway through the tribulation. So we're going to, as a church, we're going to go through partway through the tribulation. At the midpoint, we'll be caught up. And then there's a new spin on that called the pre-wrath view. Anybody remember Marv Rosenthal? He even preached here at Open Door many times. He bought into this. And he's got a whole ministry now geared towards the Lord comes in the last half of the last half of the tribulation at some point. All right? He really went the whole hog on this. Then you've got the post-tribulational people. What does that mean? Christ comes for his church at the end of the tribulation. Now, there's all kinds of problems with that we'll talk about. That's just their view. 
And then the final view is the pre-tribulational view. What does that mean? The Lord comes prior to the tribulational period. He snatches the church away. He deals with Israel, at the end of which he comes back to rule and to establish his kingdom. So there is a gap between the rapture and the second coming, the revelation and the second coming. And that's the pre-tribulational viewpoint. So let's look at each one of these. All right, and we'll just get started today. And by the way, I stole some diagrams from Dan Keeley, who stole them from Dallas Theological Seminary. So that's where I got these really cool diagrams. I didn't do them myself. Some say the rapture is the same as the second coming. There is no future rapture. There's a, it's a fictitious concept. All right, and this is the really the Reformed theology, the covenant theologian type people, Sproul, Michael Horton, the Presbyterian folk, all of those would buy into this particular model here. The problem with this is this. When you start looking, and again, what, what are we doing? We're piling all of the references having to do with the second coming on the table, and we see that there's two stacks. The rapture is when the Lord comes for his people. The second coming is when the Lord comes with them. There's a, there's, a, there's a second coming where it talks about Christ coming with his saints. And there's a part of the second coming when it says Christ coming for his saints. So how do you explain that? You can't. Unless there's two separate phases. That, that makes the most sense. But when you look at the second coming, there are two pieces to that that the Bible talks about. And the best way to put those together and to make all the passages fit coherently is to have a rapture. A, a rapture event. The rapture is when the Lord comes in the what? Air. What does he do at the second coming? He comes to the ground. Two different events. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4. There's no indication in 1 Thessalonians 4 that Christ does anything but come in the air and goes back to heaven. There's no coming all the way to the ground. There's no establishing of the kingdom. In fact, at that point, it doesn't even talk about him coming with the armies of heaven. Who's he coming with? The dead saints. There's no armies of heaven with him at that point. Two separate events. The rapture is identified with the day of Christ. The second coming is identified with the day of the Lord. What are those terms? We didn't talk about them. But the day of the Lord is a time when God directly intervenes in human history. When's he going to do that? Tribulation. Is God directly intervening in human events right now? Directly? No. How, does he, how is he intervening in human events? Through what? Through others, right? Through people, through nations, through... But there's coming a day when God... And by the way, how is God's judgments falling now? Is he directly doing them? Is he directly involved right now? No. Right? Think of being a little kid, right? You're acting up and mom disciplines you. But what happens when dad gets up off the chair and takes his belt off? You run for the exit. Right? Someday God is going to say, okay, I, my turn. I'm going, to, I'm going to deal right now. And you see that in the book of Revelation where God himself um, involves himself directly in judgment. That's the day of the Lord. What's the day of Christ? The day of Christ is talking about the time when Christ comes to take us home to be with him. It's two separate events. The day of Christ is not identified with judgment. It's identified with him taking us home to be with him. Two separate events. 
the rapture involves the church, the second coming involves who? Israel and the nations. God judges the nations. That's not the rapture. The rapture is when God, or when Christ takes us home to be with him. Two separate events. So if you want to fall into this no rapture viewpoint here, somehow you've got to adequately explain these differences. You've got to somehow come up with a system of theology that adequately explains those differences. And when I've looked at the attempts to do this, they are just, they don't make sense at all. There's no coherence to them. You got one guy saying one thing, another guy saying something else, some third guy saying something else. There's no agreement. And I, was, I told you, I was listening to the series on this from, from Ligonier Ministries with R.C. Sproul and a bunch of covenant theologians, and they were all over the map. I don't think anybody in there agreed with anybody else on that other than that the rapture is a fictitious event. That's the only thing they agreed on. Everything else was up for grabs because there is no coherence when you, when you go outside of this. So that doesn't make any sense. Then we have the partial rapture view. This is the, this is the little diagram here. What do you have? Well, we have the church age. What are we in now? Church, right? We're in the church age. And then we have a tribulational time that's divided into two parts, the first three and a half, second three and a half years. And the partial rapture people will say that there are various raptures that occur, one or more, depending on which one you are, one or more. And what Christ come, does is Christ does not gather all of the church to himself. Rather, he only gathers people who are looking for him to himself. All right? So the only way you're raptured is you need to be looking for the Lord. If you're not looking for the Lord, just doing your own thing, guess what? You get left behind. Now that's weird. All right? It splits the body of Christ into multiple pieces. It's sort of like Christ coming back for his bride and saying, Ah, oh, you're not ready yet. I'll go back and I'll come back later on. That's ridiculous. It doesn't work that way. But that's the view. That's the view. And then the way they do this, the way they explain this, is they use all those passages in the New Testament about being watchful and being ready. You don't know when the Lord will come back. You need to be ready. They, they use that to refer to the church, saying you need to be ready. And if you're not ready, you get left behind. Although you're part of the church, you get left behind to go through judgment because you're not looking for your Lord's return. I'm just saying that's where they're coming up with this stuff. That's where they... That's where they they wind up with this. All right? The, and what they say is the rapture only includes spiritual Christians. What do they mean by that? People are looking for his second coming. So let me ask a question. How many people in here woke up today expectantly looking for Christ's second coming today? We're all left behind. Unless you're expectantly looking for Christ's second coming, you get left behind. And what does it mean by expectantly looking? Well, I don't know how you define that. I mean, I guess it, I, you know, I don't know how you define that. But Christ is only going to take away those who are looking for him. And he's going to leave the rest of us here to go through the judgments of the tribulation. We only get partially raptured. Now, what does this do? The, the problem with this is it splits up the body of Christ, right? It splits up the bride. That doesn't make any sense at all. It doesn't make any theological sense at all. Christ did not say in 1 John chapter 14, I go to prepare a place for you. When I come again, I will take 
some of you to be with me. I'll take some of you. There's no some there, right? And in 1 Thessalonians, it doesn't say um, he's going to come with those that have died in Christ. And then those of, some of us who are alive and remain will be caught up together. Some of us. What does it say? Those of us who are alive. There's no some there. It's all. It does. It, it just, it, it, they, they really, here, here's, here's they wind, how they come up with this. They take those few passages that seem to refer to being ready, to being, you know, being, needing to be expectant, to mean if you're not ready and expectant, you get left behind. They distort those passages. It does. Because theoretically, are any of us expectantly looking for Christ at all times? No, we're not. Now, am I looking for Christ to come back? Well, yeah, in a general sense, sure. But I'm not driving to work saying, he's coming back today, is he coming back today? Oh, look at that cool cloud formation. Maybe that's him. I mean, come on. That's what was going on in the 1970s. <coughs> How am I ready for Christ to come back? I'm ready for Christ to come back when I work on my own sanctification and I'm prepared so that if he comes back, I'm not ashamed when he shows up. 1 Corinthians 15.51. Notice what it says in 15.51. All. It doesn't say some. All will be changed. It doesn't say when it comes again, some will be changed and some won't. All will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. It splits the body of Christ into two pieces. You have the piece that goes to heaven. You have the piece that stays here. That doesn't make any sense at all. It confuses grace with rewards. This is the big big thing here. Because theoretically, and again, we're talking about this, theoretically none of us are expectantly looking for Christ to come back 24 by 7. We're not. Now am I looking for him to return? Well, sure I am. But I don't spend every waking moment looking around and looking at the sky and seeing if there's some cloud that looks like Jesus coming back. I, I don't do that. None of us can do that. But we can be expectant in the sense that we prepare ourselves and we think in the back of our minds, you know, maybe he, he could come back at any time. I need to be ready. I don't need to be working on being a godly Christian tomorrow. I need to work on it today. Because I may not get it tomorrow. And theoretically, if we die, <laughs> that's our rapture, so to speak, in the sense of going to be with Christ. Well, we're going to stop here because I don't want to get into the other two because they're connected. Any questions or comments or... or is this making all sense so yeah. far? Yeah. Okay, good. It's a fun topic. All right, it's a fun topic. So, let's go ahead and get closed in prayer then. Father, thank you for this day you've granted and for your grace to us. And pray that you would uh, guide our, our thinking on this topic. Help us to be expectantly looking for your second coming. Um, and be ready at all times, so we'll be ready at that time in Christ's name. Amen.